17, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 18. And this is found on page 261. Page 261, chapter 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord, for my son to make an image overlaid with silver, I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith <coughs> who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days Israel had no king, and in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They represented all the Danites. They told them, "Go explore the land." So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, "Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here?" He told them that Micah, what Micah had done for him, and said, "He has hired me, and I am his priest." Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtaol, their fellow Danites asked them, How did you find things? They answered, Come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land, and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Mahanadan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. 
Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol, and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made, and my priest, and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get very angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be, used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is God's word. Let's pray as we begin, shall we? Father, thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your words. Thank you that you've told us what it looks like to live lives in worship of you. Please would you speak to us now as we dig into your words. Please show us our sin and point us to Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Joe had been committed um, to his church family for a while now. Um, he served on the refreshments rota. He helped out in the summer at the holiday club. Um, and he really loved his job as well. He'd been doing it for a number of years and was really thrilled when he got offered a promotion. The pay was vastly improved, and that would mean that he'd be able to start saving for a house. The only downside was the increase in hours. And the increase in hours was going to include working every single Sunday. He realised this would mean missing church every single week. But that was okay, he told himself. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. A few months down the line, and life was great. He'd started dating a girl from work. She was an atheist, but she really respected his views, and so that was fine. He prayed about it, and he really felt peace about it. God must be pleased with me, he thought. He'd also started going to mindfulness classes after work. After all, we can engage with God in any way we like, he thought to himself. He was really enjoying being able to properly reflect on God's love, rather than being a 
told about God's wrath like he had been at church. It fitted with his life better and felt more real than it had done before. If anything, Joe was enjoying being a Christian more than ever. Well, last week in our series in Judges, we saw, didn't we, Samson's death. And in many ways, that brings us right to the end of the judge's story. He's the last judge, and his death appears to be the last chronological event of the book. But there are five more chapters at the end of Judges. So what are they for? Well, see, they provide kind of a change in the earlier narrative structure that we've seen. Previously, we've kind of focused on the leaders of Israel being told that in their absence, all the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But now we get to zoom in a bit, we get a closer look at what it was that the people of Israel were up to during those times. Over previous weeks, we've seen how God rescued his people through the judges. But here we're given kind of a case study, if you like, of the kind of spiritual condition that he was saving them from. We've seen how, and now we're seeing what he saved them from. That's why, if you notice as we read, these chapters never mention the Lord at work. They never mention him in an active way. It shows us what life was really like when the people did as they saw fit. Did you notice chapter 17, verse 6? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is what humanity looks like when we're left to our own devices. And it's very, very bleak. What, we're not, what we've not got in our passage today is the people of Israel turning to foreign gods like the Baals, as they have done in previous chapters in Judges. Not at all. Did you notice that they invoke the Lord's name? They're, he is the one they're trying to please. They're worshipping the Lord in name. They're worshipping him in name. But they're not worshipping him as he had told them to. Instead, they're basically doing whatever they want and claiming it as worship. Rather like Joe in our story, who claimed to be worshipping God, but was clearly worshipping the idols of comfort and security. They're picking the parts of God that they like and ignoring the other parts. It isn't true worship of the Lord. Instead, it's self-made religion. And as we'll see, self-made religion is a real danger to us too. We're going to look at two signs of self-made religion and the one result of self-made religion. So the first sign then, ignoring God and prioritising me. Start of chapter 17, our passage begins with the story of Micah and his mum. It quickly, quickly becomes clear that Micah's stolen 1,100 shekels of silver. That's a lot. It's kind of a year's worth of salary. But then he's overheard her uttering a curse against the thief. And so he owns up and gives it back. He doesn't want that curse against him. And neither does his mum. Not wanting to curse her son, she immediately revokes the curse, asking the Lord instead to bless him, not to curse him. And did you notice what she does with the returned silver? Verse 3. She gives it to the Lord for her son to make an image overlaid with silver. She gives the silver to a silversmith to make an idol. It's startling, isn't it? It just shows blatant disregard for the second commandment where God says that no one should make an image 
of him. Right from the start, they've ignored God. Right from the start, they've ignored ignored God. But they've even been bold enough to say that they're doing it for God. They've ignored him, but they've been bold enough to say they're doing it for him. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 5, he takes the idol and puts it in a shrine in his home, where he also makes an ephod, which is kind of a garment that's worn by priests, and some household gods. It's further complete ignoring of what God has said. But God has said there was to be a central tabernacle where sacrifices were to be made and where worship was to be conducted. God had not allowed the Israelites to worship him wherever they wanted. But Micah sets up his own little private sanctuary for worship at his convenience. Israel's religion has become one of personal preference. And you notice, Micah even makes his own son into a priest. His own son into a priest. Again, contradicting what God had said, that only those of the tribe of Levi were to be priests. What is Micah doing? See, obedience to God's commands in how to worship him had become an optional extra, not a central principle. Instead, I just do what I want, and it's religion on my terms. What does that mean? Well, it's not about God and about his truth and about his will, but it's about me and my ideas and my preferences. I know Christmas was quite a few months ago now, um, but I want you to imagine, take yourself back to December, walking around the supermarkets in December. Everywhere you look, there seems to be an offer, doesn't there, on Quality Street or Roses or Heroes. They're all over the shops. Take a tin of Quality Street, for example. Um, I imagine we've all got our favourites and we've all got the ones we don't like, haven't we? But the problem is, you have to buy a whole tin, don't you? You have to buy a whole tin, so you have to buy the ones that you don't like as well as the ones that you do like, until this year. Because if any of you went into John Lewis's this year, they've introduced a section of their shop where you can basically choose what quality streets you want to go in your tin. Pick and mix for your quality street. Fill your tin with your favourites, and don't worry about the ones that you don't like. And that is exactly what Micah is doing here with God. It's pick and mix religion, because he dines out on the things that he likes and basically ignores the parts that he doesn't like, ignores the parts that are a bit uncomfortable. Micah's desire, you see, ultimately, is to shape and to revise God spiritually into how he wants him to be. So instead of worshipping the one true God, well, he worships his own self-constructed God that's exactly how he wants him to be. But it's not real, and it has no power. In in modern terms, this is the refusal to let God be himself in our lives. We filter out, be it consciously or unconsciously, things about God that our hearts can't accept. And it's a sin that is so common in our culture. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God more like this. How often have you heard that? Perhaps the most serious way that we do this is by consciously rejecting part of God's revelation to us in Scripture. We do this whenever we say something along the lines of, I can no longer accept a God who says this or who does this. When we use the term no longer, we kind of wrap ourselves in the mantle of so-called progression, that our culture loves that word, doesn't it? But in fact, what we're really saying is, our culture's distaste for this idea means that we must drop it. 
We must have a God that fits completely within our culture. This means we, like Micah, are reshaping God to fit into our society and our hearts instead of letting God shape our hearts and our society. Another way we do this is by simply ignoring those aspects of God's revelation that we don't like. Take our giving, for example. God's very strong on, giving, on us giving our money away and not spending it lavishly on ourselves. But we can just avoid thinking out the implications of that in our own lives, can't we? It's very easy to do. Or we might know that God is very strong on forgiveness and on grace, but actually we live a life in which we're very judgmental very unforgiving. Maybe I identify with one of those things in your heart, or perhaps you're more prone to subjectivizing all morality, like Alex and Sarah, perhaps, who were sleeping together despite not being married. All their mates at work had been doing it for years, and they felt like they were missing out. They prayed about it, they felt that God had given them peace about it. If God had given them peace about it, then why not? But they ignore the objective commands that God gives about sex and marriage in his word. See, they've done the same thing as Micah. We so easily do the same thing as Micah, following God's law so far, but then twisting it or adding to it so that essentially you can do what you like. Why is this such a problem? Because it makes it impossible for us to have a truly personal relationship with God. In a relationship, the other person can contradict you and upset you. But then you have to wrestle through it, don't you, to deeper intimacy. But when we simply ignore the parts of God's word that we don't like, it means we don't have a God that can ever contradict us, contradict our deepest desires, or say no to us. We never let him make demands on us. We only ever make demands on him. We end up worshipping a much more comfortable God but also a non-existent one. We replace the one true God with a worthless and powerless idol. Well, we've seen that in Micah, but we see it in the Dianites too, in chapter 18, look down verse one. We're reminded this is a time when Israel had no king. The writer doesn't complete the sentence as he does in the previous chapter, but the implication is that what follows will be the outworking of doing what's right in your own eyes. Verse one goes on. The Danites are still seeking a place of their own. Why? Because unlike the other tribes, they had ignored God's command to drive out the Canaanites and fight courageously to gain their God-given inheritance. If you can remember back to chapter 1, which was a fair few weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 34, the Danites are confined to the hill country because of this, because they don't trust the Lord in driving out the Canaanites. So they're in search of a land where they can settle in, where they can plant, where they can grow, where they can eat crops. And like Micah, they've got an idolatrous view of God and of his word. God had already told them where to live, but regardless of that, completely ignoring that, they send out spies to explore the surrounding land and see where they could occupy. Look down with me, chapter 18, verse 7. So the five men left and came to the land of Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. See, they find a land 
where the people live secure and peaceful lives. And they're prospering because the land lacks nothing. And so they want it for themselves. This would be great. Why don't we try and live here? It sounds better than God's proposition. And so they ignore him, forging on instead and claiming the land for themselves. No thanks, God. We'll do it our way. And another character, the Levite, who we met in the story, is just the same. Rather than a ministry motivated by serving the Lord, you might have noticed his ministry is motivated purely by self-motivation, self-promotion. He really serves only himself. He serves whoever is willing to pay him, no matter the setup, ignoring God's law. Did you notice that? Chapter 17, verse 10. Then he tells people what they want to hear in chapter 18, verse 6. And then he moves on to a more impressive career at the end of chapter 18 when the Danites come calling. His decisions are driven entirely by self-interest and yet each one of them takes him further away from the Lord. See, he starts as a Levite in Bethlehem, the foremost tribe of God's people, the Levites, and a town which was central to God's plans for his people. Then he moves on to the hill country and to an idolatrous shrine. And then he moves on to Laish, outside the land that God has given to his people, working for a tribe that has rejected God. In his terms, he's achieved dizzying heights. He runs the worship for an entire tribe of God's people. But it's hollow worship that knows only the idol of self-promotion. Well, how easily we do the same. How easily we do the same. Has your serving at church become more about building up your servant-hearted image rather than willingly serving the Lord out of his love, out of love for his people? Or have you allowed yourself to be persuaded that the way of the world, money, sex, power, will be more prosperous and satisfying than God's way? I wonder, in what ways are you prioritising yourself and ignoring God? Perhaps this is a healthy question. When was the last time that you didn't like what the Bible said culturally, but you did it anyway? When was the last time that you didn't like what the Bible said culturally, but you did it anyway? We've got to beware of religion on our terms. It ceases to be about God and his truth and his will. Instead, it becomes all about me and my ideas, and my preferences. It's an easy or exciting religion, but it's not a religion which will bring blessing or rescue, as we're going to see. That's the first sign of self-made religion, ignoring God and prioritising me. The second sign of self-made religion is this, trying to manipulate God. See, self-made religion tries to get God to do what I want, with a refusal to let God be God. Did you notice the baffling statement of Micah, chapter 17, at the end of chapter 17, verse 13? He's just set up the shrine, ephod, idols, his own private priests, all blatantly ignoring what God has told him to do, all blatantly ignoring God's law. And what does he say, verse 13? Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Really, Micah? It's baffling how he's blatantly ignored the Lord. Do you see what he's essentially saying? I've ticked off all these religious boxes now, so it's time for payback. The Lord's going to be good to me. 
Micah is trying to manipulate God. The purpose of all his religious efforts are to get access to God so that he can get God to do whatever he wants. And again, he's not the only one. Did you notice the Danites are playing a similar game? Chapter 18, verse 5. The five spies come to the Levite while on their journey and they ask him to inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. Hey God, you know you told us to take that land, but we didn't really fancy it. And we want to kind of find somewhere else, somewhere better. Will you help us find somewhere? Do you see their manipulative hearts? They want to control God. They don't listen to him. They want him to listen to them. But look out, because we do it too. We do it too. I've been really regular at church over the last few months. I've not missed a prayer meeting in years. I've even started helping out with the kids. Tick, tick, tick. God must be proud of me. He must be on my side. Or perhaps you're more prone to doing it with your morning Bible time. I know that I should be thinking, here's God's word, what a privilege to hear from him each day and for him to be at work changing me. But how often do I use it as a bargaining chip? How often is it to make me feel good, to get God on my side, to make me feel like I've ticked the boxes? So easily, the real aim becomes that God would hear my word and obey me rather than me hearing his and learning to obey him. I wonder, how is it that your heart tries to manipulate God? Recently, we've been thinking a lot, haven't we, about how to respond to God's abundant grace through financial giving. Perhaps your tendency is that of Micah's mum. Did you notice how she tries to manipulate God in chapter 17? Verse 3, having promised her silver to the Lord, she only actually gives 200 shekels of it, and she keeps 900 back for herself. She doesn't really put God first or give him sovereignty over all of her life. No, she wants to keep hold of some parts. She wants to seem like she's all in, but she's actually holding a lot back. She wants to seem like she's all in, but she's holding something back. I wonder, is there any ways in which we're claiming to have Jesus as Lord, but in reality only giving him certain parts of our lives, perhaps the comfortable parts of our lives, and preserving other areas as we want, not letting him touch those and to change us in those areas. See, we can't deceive God He knows, and he wants all of our lives. He wants all of our lives. The tragedy of self-made religion is that it always reduces God to someone to be controlled, rather than seeing God as the one who's in control and is worthy of real, whole life worship. And reducing God leaves us worshipping an idol who can't help, who can't save, who can't bless There's two signs of self-made religion, ignoring God and prioritising me and trying to manipulate God. Finally then, the one result of self-made religion, it ends in ruin. See, the hard reality of this passage is that we can be very religious but not have God's blessing. It can all count for nothing. Did you notice where Micah ends up with his self-made religion? He says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. But just a few verses later, chapter 18, verse 24, he finds himself chasing after the Danites who've stolen all of his stuff. 
You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? He says. Everything that Micah had could be taken away from him, and now they have been. The Danites have taken them away from him. He had nothing else. He built up his religious life, added to his shrine an idol, an ephod, even a Levite priest, and had looked to it for blessing. But all that he's trusted in is gone, and he can't get it back. See, perhaps for a time, our self-made religion might seem successful and liberating, but in the end, in the end, it catches up with us. Self-made religion will disappoint and will end in ruin. Whatever it is that we make into our idol, money, power, relationships, even a reduced version of God, it will not deliver. The person making career their God will eventually find their roots a blessing blocked by someone who is too strong for them. The person making image their God will find that time is an enemy that is too strong for them to hang on to their youth and good looks. And ultimately, death removes all the false gods, all the idols that we look to for blessing. See, Micah was blessed in that he discovered the emptiness of his idol before he died, when it was not too late. That might not be true for us. I wonder, what is the thing about which, if it were taken away from you, you would say, like Micah, you took my God, what else do I have? Where can I go in life now? I've got nothing left. What would that be for you? And what about the Danites? Well, this is where it gets really ugly because idolatry is always in conflict and leads to the oppression of the weak and the vulnerable. What are the Danites prepared to do in their desire for a prosperous land of their own? Look down with me, verse 27 of chapter 18. Then they took what Micah had made and his priests and went on to Laish against the people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they had lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. See, it's blatant genocide. And innocent people living at peace, wiped out because of the Danites' rejection of God's plan and their selfishness. Self-made religion has collateral damage. The Danites rebuild the city and they set up for themselves the idol and they worship there in idolatry for hundreds of years. And for those few hundred years, they must have felt vindicated They finally had a prosperous land of their own and life was good. For a time, their self-made religion was paying off. But, verse 30 of chapter 18, only until the captivity of the land, when God will take the land away from them, in the same way that he took the idols from Micah. They're a tribe without God's blessing, and we know that because they're the only tribe of Israel that are omitted from the list of tribes that are in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, chapter 7, sorry. Their self-made religion has brought destruction on others and ultimately upon themselves too. I wonder if you're sitting here thinking, I can see that self-made religion is dangerous, but I'm probably safe from that. Well, hear the warning bells of verse 30. 
Here's a tribe that's born into God's people, but who live outside God's land, who ignore his words, and live entirely at odds with how he's commanded. There's the tribe. But also in verse 30, we discover this Levite is Moses' grandson, a great leader of God's people. And just two generations later, perhaps this guy even sat on Moses' knee when he was young, a Levite who will compromise on everything except his own interests. No persons related to God by family tree. No church is related to him by pedigree. We must see the danger that this could be us, this could be you, this could be me. Sliding into self-made religion. Well, what should the Danites and Micah have done? Look down at verse 31, very end of the passage. All the time the house of God was in Shiloh. God had made it possible for people to approach him, to worship him, to know him and to live with him. The tabernacle, which was the place of God's presence among his people, was in Shiloh and should have been the focal point of Micah and the Danites' lives. And so should God's tabernacle today be for us. Jesus, the man who is literally the word became flesh, tabernacled among us. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. If we do not centre our lives on him as the way to approach, worship, know and live with God, then we're centering our lives on self-made religion, on an idol, on something that cannot bless. See, when we find Jesus, that's when we find blessing. When we find Jesus, that's when we find blessing. But we only truly experience his blessing when we say to him, Jesus, without you, what else do I have? You're my everything. We only truly experience his blessing when we say to him, Jesus, without you, what else do I have? You're my everything. We have to realise that there is nowhere else to go in life and there is no need to go anywhere else than to go to Jesus. If we know Jesus is ultimately all that we have, we will discover that he's eternally all that we need. Will we turn to him? Well, we're going to respond together in song. Um, Here are the words of the chorus that we're going to sing together. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Drive our dark away till your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Bind us to your cross where we find life. Let's sing this song as a prayer of repentance and dependence, acknowledging our brokenness and our need for Jesus to shine his light into our darkness.